This is the word of God, spoken in power, given in love. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together. Father, we're all deeply grateful that you are a God who speaks. It's our urgent prayer in this moment, this sacred precious moment that you would lower our defenses push down our pride clear the clutter in our souls silence the voices that compete with yours and tune us to the unmistakable voice of your spirit. Remove anything in us that would hinder us from receiving everything you want for us right now. Jesus, unveil yourself. Help us to see you as you truly are. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a great privilege and joy to stand before you. Nate, thanks for the kind introduction. I want to uh, get something out of the way here at the beginning. I am rather uncomfortable talking to audiences, groups, churches that I don't know. Uh, I'm not uh, the detached speaker guy that goes from church to church uh, I'm used to knowing who sits where. I know what stories are going on over here. Uh, I'm the most extroverted, people-oriented person I've ever met. And so I'm intimidated. Uh, I don't presume to know what's going on in your life or what God is up to. 
And one more caveat, this is an unorthodox Palm Sunday sermon. So if you came in expecting to hear a sermon about Jesus riding into Jerusalem and palm branches and hosannas, um, blame Nate. (laughs) So that's not this message, so... And finally, I speak to you not as a Bible expert or even as a pastor today. And I'm certainly not a professional Christian. I'm just another broken, desperate person who stepped out of the crowd and was rescued by King Jesus. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, once said, We experience pain whenever we bump into reality. I want to tell you about my most recent bump into reality. I think it's important for you to know where I'm coming from. As we talk about pain and how we might respond to it. January 22nd, 2015, it was Thursday. I had just preached at the Martin Luther King service in downtown Franklin days earlier. I had so much fun preaching that day. I felt so alive. I could literally feel the pleasure of God as I saw the multi-ethnic group gathered and we were making much of Jesus together and reimagining what the kingdom could look like if it was fully unleashed in this town. I was still levitating after that great moment and Thursday I woke up And I felt a pain in my stomach I'd never felt before. It wasn't your garden variety stomach pain, like I ate something bad the night before, or maybe I'm nervous about something. I am kind of hardwired for anxiety. I naturally caffeinated, as my wife said. But this was different. Your body tells you things, and my body was telling me this is is different. You need to pay attention to it. As the day progressed, the pain got worse, gathered in its intensity. I ended up at Kroger running some errands for my wife and our family. I've got three young daughters, Lily, Joy, and Sarah, ages 10, 7, and 4. And as I was just about to reach for the bread, the pain seized me, and I doubled over and fell down. I hit the floor on my knees. And all I could do was pray. I picked up my phone and started shouting messages at Siri. I thought of a medical professional, actually four medical professionals um, in our church community. And I just told Siri to send this message out. Horrible pain. I know I'm prone to drama and overreactions. But this is not one of those times. Come to Kroger. Two of them showed up within five minutes. And what began as just another Thursday ended up being the beginning of the rest of my life. Later that night, after a battery of tests, it was determined that I had stage four colon cancer. I saw my wife and the look on her face. I saw my friends The brothers in my discipleship group that are truly brothers, wiping tears, 
praying, whispering. I saw the look on my doctor's face. And the face has told me a story. And the story went like this. The story of your life is coming to a screeching halt. Game, set, match. Get your affairs in order. This is the end. I was thrown into an indescribable hole of chaos, uncertainty, despair that I can't even now wrap my mind around. In the days and weeks after my emergency surgery, my brother's helped me put together a game plan for how to walk through this trial. And I want to make it very clear to you as I share this plan with you that I am not on the other side of the trial. I'm fighting right now. 72 hours ago, I was hooked up to a very harsh chemotherapy regimen. And I'm over the top thankful that I feel well enough to even be here and speak to you. So if you have the impression that I'm a hopeful Pollyanna living in a perpetual state of sunshine, as you hear me go crazy a little bit on this pulpit about hope and how powerful it is when we let hope have us, understand that this message is just as much for me as it is for you. We're in this together. If you're in the midst of a trial right now, you have found the right place. This word is for you. Maybe you're coming out of a trial and you're still trying to process it and you're a little shell-shocked and trials are like bombs that explode in the soul and it takes a while to pull the shrapnel pieces from your heart and understand exactly what happened and how it affected you. Others of you are in a place of quiet and peace And it feels good to walk in your shoes. Let me just tell you, don't tune this message out because your time is coming. It is coming. One of the most destructive narratives that is dominant and prevailing in our day is that we are entitled to a suffering-free, pain-free, trial-free life. Whoever told us that was lying. This world is permeated by sin and evil. And when the voices of our culture tell us, lower your expectations for the next life, there is no next life, and raise your expectations for this life because this is all there is. The Bible tells a different story, a truer story, a better story. I want us to enter that story together. And I want us to have a candid conversation about what it looks like to walk through a trial. We live in what has to be the most pain-averse era in American history. We don't know what to do with pain. We do everything we can to feel the pain. We deny it. We ignore it. We numb the pain. Or we 
run to the other end of the spectrum and we let our pain define us. Have you met that person? They are their illness. They are their bad marriage. They are their generational sin. They are their dysfunctional family. They are whatever the dysfunction might be. So we're either running away from it at great cost to our souls or we're letting it define us. What if we approached it from a different angle? James, the brother of Jesus, said this. This is the logic of the kingdom, the upside down, the counterintuitive kingdom. Consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever, not if ever, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, you don't suspect, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. My goal for this sermon is to equip you to embrace the trials you face as gifts of grace and to walk through the trials of life with supernatural joy, hope, and resilience. I hope you'll leave here wanting to hug the cactus, if you will, and resolve to not waste your pain. This content is not theoretical, it's tactical. I want you to be able to use this as you walk through trials, um, and some of you need it today. Some of us need it today. Here's how I define a trial, if you're wondering, what's a trial? A trial is a season of unexpected and open-ended pain that tests our capacity to trust God. I'm going to say that again. A trial is a season of unexpected and open-ended pain that tests our capacity to trust God. It comes from out of nowhere. It pounces on us, and there seems to be no end in sight. And so we pray, God, make it stop. Lord, when is this going to end? And the longer it goes, the harder it gets, and it gets really dark. Sometimes it gets so dark that we wonder if there's ever going to be light again. We pray. We don't discern the presence of God. We don't see answers. We have questions, shattering questions. How do we recon reconcile the goodness of God and the promises of God with what I'm feeling? How do I sync up the theology of the Bible with what I'm going through right now? They're not computing. They're not linking up and I'm coming apart inside. I feel like my soul is unraveling. God, what do I do with this? Has anybody ever been there? Your trial might be a loss, a death in your family, a loss of relationship. Losses come in many forms. It has many faces. Losses are hard. Maybe you lost a job. Your identity has been shaken to the core. Maybe it was a betrayal. Somebody turned on you, got burned. A shattered dream, a hard health diagnosis, marriage tension that won't let up. A child goes rogue, abandons the faith. Maybe it's addiction. And the residual effect of being enslaved by sin. 
Maybe it's a financial trial. There's no stress like money stress. It has a unique sting to it. The first decision you have to make, and pardon me for speaking uh, so straightforwardly, but the first decision you must make when the trial does come is that you will walk through it. Not around it, not away from it, but through it. The pain of avoiding the trial is far greater than the pain of walking through it. And the benefits of walking through it with an open heart before the Lord are incalculable and glorious. Now, everything in your soul will say, "Uh uh-uh, don't do it. You don't want to go there. This is not your life. Check out. Do something else. And if you could just imagine Jesus walking toward the cross. Now, why did he do that? What motivated Jesus to put one foot in front of the other toward an excruciating death? Hebrews 12 tells us, we know it was joy for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame anticipated joy of finishing well, staying the course of looking back on the trial and saying, God did it again. He was faithful. Look at what God did. Some of you are tempted right now to throw in the towel and say, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I can't take another breath. And I'm here to tell you in the name of Jesus Christ, No, you can't do it, but he totally can. He absolutely can. And when the endurance of King Jesus courses through your soul, you can withstand anything. But with our own resources, we wilt and wither. Let's talk about the purpose of trials now. Why? That's the question, right? After I was diagnosed, everybody around me was like, Why? He's a young dad. What about his children, his wife, his church? Why? Now, I'm really thankful that that why question theologically was settled before I got diagnosed. I had categories, not specific answers for why did I get stage four colon cancer this point in my life, I, I, don't, I don't know that. I'm not sure I can know that. I'm not sure that question is worth my emotional energy. But from a macro level, why does God allow or cause, both are equally uncomfortable to me, why does God allow or cause trials to come upon his own children? Well, let's tackle that question with a bigger question. What does God ultimately want for you and me as his sons and daughters? We can know that. This is something that is not squishy or unknowable. We're all looking for the will of God. Sometimes we treat the will of God like it's some evasive, elusive thing. And there are verses in the Bible that come out and say, this is what God wants for you. And if you're asking that question, 
I just want to read a very simple verse. It's tucked away in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Here it goes. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And there's a period at the end of that sentence. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. I know sanctified is a big theology word, big church word. Here's what it means. I'm from Alabama. I need to um, bring it down to my level here. Sanctification is the progressive transformation of our character into the character of Jesus. It's us becoming like Jesus. What God wants is for you to live your life as Jesus would if he had your family, your marriage, your job, your pain, your income, your neighbors, your friends, your life. That is God's primary agenda for you. Now, when we get clear about that, then a lot of the mysteries that we find ourselves caught up in become simple. Oh, so that's why I have that hard boss to deal with. He's there for my sanctification. That's why I've got these neighbors catty corner to me that are just hard to love. Maybe they're there for my sanctification. Maybe we're going through this rough time in our marriage because what God wants more than anything else is for us to treat each other the way Jesus would if he were in our place. Maybe the circumstances of your life right here, right now, are perfectly designed to encourage you to become like Jesus. Especially the hard stuff. So how does this work? How does sanctification work? Practically speaking, two ways. The first way is a habitual, disciplined approach. This is how we partner with the Holy Spirit in the spiritual disciplines, the great traditions of the church. Scripture, encountering God in the Bible, making it an immovable priority in our life, day in, day out. Listening to God, being with God there. Prayer, keeping the channel open between our soul and the very heart of God. Praying without ceasing, staying in prayer. Fasting, depriving ourselves of food or media or whatever you choose to fast from. Fast from anything that is creating an idolatry or an addiction in you. We fast in order to feast. We fast from this to feast on the Lord Jesus because he is the bread of life. We confess our sins to one another as a spiritual discipline because we need grace and we need to agree with God about how we're really doing so we're not swept away in a tidal wave of self-deception. The great disciplines of the centuries. Through that disciplined approach, the Holy Spirit conforms us to the very image of Jesus. But there's another way, and it's the path of suffering. Disciplines and suffering, the twin towers of transformation. You can't have one without the other. God wants us to leverage both. At some point, it will happen. The realities of living in a fallen world will pounce without warning. 
Our daily habits will prepare us to respond with faith. That's the value of spiritual training. But we have absolutely no control over the trials that come our way. These trials purge us and burn away the unnecessary, the excesses, the distractions, the sins, the ugly. Trials expose our idols. Trials are a medium of revelation. If you want to know how I truly am, if you want to know who I really am, watch me walk through a trial and you'll see. We don't get to choose our struggles, but God has given us the freedom to choose how we respond. Life happens as they say. It can be really hard, ugly, evil, horrid stuff. But by God's grace and power, the trials we face are a way forward into the Father's heart. It is participation in the suffering of Jesus. And it ushers us into a sweet communion with the groaning spirit. Paul the Apostle taught about the purpose of trials in Romans chapter 5. Nate already read the passage. I'd like to read it one more time quickly. If you're wondering why, why does God cause or allow trials in the life of the believer? It's right here in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Watch the language here. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. There's a logic there. Suffering, perseverance, character, hope. Like dominoes touching another. Suffering leading to hope. And hope, watch this. Hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Past tense, the love of God has been poured into our hearts. It's already happened. It's something that we can confidently stand in and say, my heart is overflowing with the love of God. Whether my emotions feel it or not, it's there. According to Romans 5, there are four purposes of a trial. Here we go. If you're a note taker, this is your cue. Number one, pain increases our ability to endure with God. Pain increases our ability to endure with God. James chapter 1 in the J.B. Phillips paraphrase I love this. It says, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to produce in you the quality of endurance. Shortly after I started seminary in the fall of 2001, our school had the annual fundraising 5K race. Faculty, students, community gathered 
and I was 22 years old. I thought I was in great shape. And now my wife, who is the epitome of self-discipline, said, we probably should train for this. I'm like, train for a 5K? It's a 5K, not a half marathon. But she said, okay, you, you do what you need to do, but I'm gonna train. I'd like to finish well and have a good time and beat some of our new friends, kind of competitive that way. And I just said, whatever you can train, I will drink coffee and study and hang out and be a seminary student and gain weight. The race day came. The night before, I had done an all-nighter because I'm a notorious procrastinator. I studied, wrote a paper, cranked it out, printed it off. I put my oversized t-shirt and basketball shorts on, uh, my never-used running shoes on, went to the race, wiped the sleep out of my eyes, had lots of coffee, ready to run. And there's my wife, Joni, in her well-worn shoes. She's got her playlist in her ears. She's ready to go. She's hydrated. She's properly fed. She's ready to go. And then there are those other people. Have y'all seen the other people at the races? There was this one dude who I promise you was wearing a purple spandex onesie. (laughs) I thought he was wearing glasses, but they were more like goggles. He was, I guess he was preparing to run so fast that the wind was going to hit his face and (laughs) bugs. Who knows? I, I just, it just looked really crazy. And he did not come to play, all right? And I, I, it was just, it was just a, it was a cultural experience. So the race starts. Here we go. I shot out of there like a cannon. And Joni is like, hey, hey, uh, pace yourself, Josh. And I'm like, pace myself. Story of my life. Start strong. And then here's what happens. I'm running. It's feeling good. I'm way ahead of most people. I see the purple spandex onesie fly by me. Like I don't, I don't anticipate catching up to him. And then I start to feel an unusual pain in my chest. Running pain. My side. I, I, I had those in high school when I played basketball. We would run suicides and, and I would feel this. I pushed through it. It goes away. This didn't go away. It kept on coming and coming and coming. And then I told you I'm hopped up for anxiety. I start thinking, I'm going to have a heart attack. And I start to panic. Well, these unhelpful thoughts lead to more pain in the chest. And it's kind of a snowball effect. I get anxious. The pain gets worse. The pain gets worse. I get more anxious. And then Joni, I hear her coming, and she's like, Josh, you okay? You're slowing down. She's kind of taunting me now. I said, I'm not feeling well. And she was like, well, yeah, I guess not. (laughs) At this point, I'm not even verbal because I'm I'm worried that I'm going to die in the race. I really thought that. Your mind plays tricks on you. So I had to stop. I, I just stopped running, not even one mile in. And I turned around, walked the other way, and I had to watch everybody pass me. The last person who passed me was our professor of Hebrew, 77 years old. And he said, way to go, Bama boy. It's like the last thing I needed to hear. 
I tell that self-deprecating story to illustrate the fact that we don't come out of the womb preloaded with the capacity to endure. The only way to learn how to keep moving forward is to get knocked down, to get hit. God wants you to have steel in your spine. And I can say this. I used to not speak so strongly. Cancer has a way of lowering the people pleaser in me. Christians should be the most resilient people on planet earth. Because we have been given access to the same spirit that raised King Jesus from the dead. Do you believe that? That's not a theological truth that's detached from real life. It is our life. Endurance means steadfast adherence to a course of action in spite of difficulties and testing. When I bumped into the reality of my mortality through cancer, I had some choices to make. Will I surrender to the purifying power of pain and be transformed? Or will I fight against my life and against God and drown in a sea of despair? Will I let God expose my arrogance in assuming that I'm just going to live this long life? Which is what I thought. Maybe you're facing a similar choice. Will I cooperate with the Lord Jesus or will I fight against my life? The second purpose of a trial is this. Pain makes our faith real. It makes it real. Don't you want to know, is this whole God thing for real? Are my beliefs true? Do they go all the way down into my soul? Or am I, have I been faking it all these years? You're going to find out when you go through a trial just how real your faith is. There's a moment, call it a put up or shut up moment. I don't know. I could think of some other ways to put it, but it wouldn't be appropriate for this sermon. Are you going to be a Christian or not? Are you going to trust God or are you going to be God? What's it going to be? Uncomfortable questions. But these questions must be answered, and our lives are the answer. A goldsmith uses heat under a smelting pot to bring the impurities to the top so they can be skimmed off, leaving only the pure gold. In the same way, God uses pain to bring out the impurities in our lives so that they can be removed. One of the first realizations I had as I was laying in the bed at home, the home health care nurse had just come to irrigate my wound really painful. She was the mean dragon lady. Would come, took this pressure washer thing and would, I had this really impressive cut from here to here and she would just spray it because she didn't want it to get infected. And as she did that and after she left and as I would just cried out in agony, honestly, I had this realization that this cleansing 
was supposed to go all the way in. And God wanted to wean me from the world with its trinkets and empty promises and fleeting pleasures. God often ushers us into a trial because we're in desperate need of a theological makeover. Nothing exposes bad theology like pain. We have a theology of vocation in our church. We have a theology of atonement, forgiveness, redemption, new life. Theology of family, theology of scripture. But do we have a theology of pain that works? Number three. The purpose of trials. Pain refines our character. It refines our character. You know the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's one of those passages that's plagued with over-familiarity. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the, evidence that the, is, these are the evidences that the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of the believer. These are the fruits. How do these fruits grow? How do you become a loving person? By being around unlovable people? By entering into real relationships with other broken humans? What about peace? The only way to learn peace and to grow the fruit of peace is to experience chaos. What about joy? How do we learn to grow the fruit of joy through circumstances that are discouraging and hard? God has designed the circumstances of our lives to bring forth these fruits. They grow in the soil of suffering. Your trials make your story stick. It's easy to say, God is good, Jesus is alive, praise be to God, when everything's okay. But there is something powerful and potent when somebody who's walking through a trial can say with integrity, not with a plastic manufactured smile, but with something that comes from within. Somebody said that Christians are like stained glass. Have you heard that before? When the sun shines... They sparkle, and when the light goes out, they glow from within. That glow, that unmistakable glow, is the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, makes your story stick. Peter said, be prepared to give people an answer for your hope. Hope demands an explanation. Genuine hope does. My oncologist is a bold, brash, Jewish agnostic from Chicago. I don't say that to stereotype him. I just want you to get a picture in your mind of who he is. And I'm... How shall I describe myself in this context? Uh, I'm a cancer-ridden... Unimpressive preacher from Alabama 
And I think God sent me to him just like he sent him to me. I need his medical expertise and he needs my hope. The conversations that we have in the chemo room, in his office, are kind of incredible. He calls me Reverend Chemo Beast. (laughs) A title I never thought I would have. I asked him, why do you call me that? He says, because... When it comes to handling the side effects of chemotherapy, uh, you won the genetic lottery. And I'm like, well, maybe there's another explanation. And he's like, nope, it's pure genetics. Do you often find that people who have faith in Jesus prevail in their trial of cancer in ways that people who don't? I just asked him the question. Questions are disarming. He says, honesty demands that I say yes. How do you feel about it? I don't like it. (laughs) Why don't you like it? Because it disproves my theory. What's your theory? Christianity's a hoax. Who knows what God will do there? Hope demands a response. Number four, pain redirects our hope. I have become something of a hope addict ever since being diagnosed with cancer. I want to talk to you now about hope, what it is, what it's not, and how to use it. I'm I'm rounding third coming home, just so you know. Coming into your neighborhood. What is hope? Hope is not wishful thinking. It's not shallow optimism. It is the confident expectation that the goodness of God is coming to you. It's powerful. Oh, it's good. It's so good. The goodness of God coming to you. It's looking at the future and saying, yes, bring it on. Here comes the goodness of God. False hope is putting your hope in the wrong things, things that are unstable and unreliable, money, health, career, family. Real hope is anchoring your soul in the faithfulness of God. The Spirit unleashes hope in suffering. Hope is the confident, joyful expectation of what the Lord has promised. And as disciples of Jesus, we must embrace the hope of the empty tomb. I know it's not Easter, but can we celebrate the empty tomb? Is it okay, Nate? Okay, good. Let's not pretend that Jesus is dead because he's not. Let's remember that nothing is impossible for God. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us It resides in us, we have access to it, and we can take a big gulp of living water anytime we want it. The great hope of humanity is not a better career or more money or a pain-free life or a perfect health record or a great portfolio in retirement. The great hope of humanity is the renewal and the restoration of all things. New heaven, new earth, no more death, no more dying, new bodies, resurrected bodies where people and God live together without hindrance, without a barrier. That world is coming and in the resurrection of Jesus. It is already broken in. The curse is in reverse and you have been invited to live in that story. You are living in a story of redemption right here, right now. That's just the truth. Do you believe these things? There will be a day when all hurts are healed, all longings fulfilled. This is not a pipe dream. This is ultimate reality. 
Hebrews 6, verses 18 to 20, Eugene Peterson paraphrases it like this in the message. I love this. We who have run for our very lives to God have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let go. Hope is not Pollyanna singing a weird wishful tune. Hope is a pit bull grabbing a tire clenching with his jaws, never letting go. That's a picture of hope. Here's what it says. Hope for the believer is an unbreakable spiritual lifeline reaching past all appearances right to the very presence of God where Jesus, running on ahead of us, has taken up his permanent post as high priest for us. Six months after I was diagnosed with cancer, I was in my car and I was driving down Columbia Avenue and I got a phone call from Joni. This is 24 hours before we were going to go to Disney World, by the way. That's important context. Rudy's not doing well. Rudy was our 10-year-old rambunctious Boston Terrier. What's, not, what's going on with Rudy? I don't know. He, he's... He's just not acting like himself. Could you come home and maybe take him to the vet? It's the last thing you want to hear a day before a week-long vacation. I go home, put Rudy in my truck. We went to the vet. My friend Adam, the vet, said, Rudy has cancer. I've got cancer. The dog's got cancer. <laughs> really? I mean, laughter is the appropriate response. I just can't think of a better time than the day before Disney World to tell my three children, not only does your dad have cancer, but the dog has cancer. It was just a really hard day. Told Joni what was going on. Joni starts crying. Like, not the normal, barely crying tears, but the ugly crying that comes from the bowels of your soul. She was like, I, I can't take this. So I started praying for a tangible sign of hope. By the end of the day, give me a tangible sign of hope. God, I can't go home with this story and only have this story. And by the way, before I got diagnosed, when I heard these stories that I'm about to finish telling you, I, I would question and say, no, that's, that's too good to be true. He's lying. This, is, this sounds like something that would be uh, the punchline of a joke or maybe uh, at the tail end of a really badly made Christian movie. But this happened. I've got to steward the story. It happened. The same God who did this for me is totally at work in your life. Remember, I prayed for a tangible sign of hope. I had a friend call me. Five o'clock. The clock is ticking. I've got to go home and face my kids and tell them that their dog is dying. And he said, hey, could you, could you drop by the house? i got something for you. Like, I, you know, man, I really don't have time. I, we're going to Orlando the next day. He, just come by the house. So I dropped by his house. This is not even a good friend, okay? This is just a, a guy in our church who felt prompted to do something. Have you ever been prompted to do something? Didn't make a lot of sense. He said, you know, I'm not the, uh, the guy who walks through the shops in downtown Franklin and buys things like this, but... I was at lunch with a business associate. I saw this, and it had your name on it. But go home and open it. Don't open it here. It was just a regular-looking box. Took it home. 
was like, whatever this is, I don't have time for this. We got home, and I said, hey, Bobby gave us this gift. And Joni said, I hope it's something that uh, will give us some hope because I'm not looking forward to the rest of this night, are you? I was like, no, maybe we should like hold off on the dog and cancer story until after Disney World. And she said, okay, that's, that's great. So we start opening this gift. You're not going to believe what was inside. It was a picture. Wooden frame. It was a sign. And across the front was the word hope. A tangible sign of hope. Now, every now and then, God makes it really simple for me. But when I saw that, I was like, okay, I got the picture. I'm going to trust you. Daddy's got cancer. The dog has cancer. But hope is real. And we can give ourselves to it. It's one thing for us to go into this week and have Easter, but I want to challenge you to let Easter have you. Get caught up in the drama. Ken Ulmer is the pastor of a mostly African-American congregation in Los Angeles. He tells the story of about two men in an art museum who walked upon a painting, a chess game. One character in the painting looked like an ordinary man. The other character looked like the devil. The man is down to his last two pieces on the chessboard. The title of the painting is Checkmate. The impression is that the man in the picture is about to lose. All hope is lost. The situation is hopeless. One of the two men looking at this painting is a former chess champion. Something about the painting didn't sit well with him. Something was off, and it troubled him. He became engrossed looking at this painting. His friend gets impatient and says, there's so many other exhibits. Can we please move on? He said, no, I've got to study the painting. Something's wrong. So his friend walked away and said, I've got to go look at the other pieces. About an hour later, he came back. The man was still there looking at the painting. He said, are you still seriously looking at this checkmate chess painting? He said, yes, I've got to contact the local artist who did this and tell him that he either has to change the picture or he has to change the title. Something's wrong. It's bad art. His friend asked him what was wrong with the painting. The chess champion said, well, it's called Checkmate, but the title is wrong. The painter either has to change the painting or change the title because the king still has one more move. If he makes the move, he'll win. The king has one more move. Now, as Bishop Ulmer told this story in the mostly African-American church, when he said the king has one more move, the church started to make some noise. When they heard that it wasn't checkmate because the king of kings still had one more move, they started shouting, amen, hallelujah, glory. They got the message loud and clear. The king of kings always has one more move, and it's a winning move. That was the case 
when a man named Moses convinced a nation of oppressed slaves to run away from the most powerful man on earth. They're standing on the shore with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. The Egyptians are shouting, checkmate. And the people of God said to Moses, what were you thinking? And Moses looked up and said, God, what were you thinking? But the king had one more move. And then there was this teenager named David who went out to battle. He heard about a a very large, strong, powerful, intimidating, scary guy named Goliath who was challenging the people of God. David spoke out against him. And before he knew it, he was face to face with a giant. David tried on Saul's armor, but Saul is a 52 long and David is a 36 short. Goliath and his Philistine cronies are shouting, check mate. But David knows something they don't know. The king has one more move. On Good Friday, they unfairly tried Jesus. They judged him harshly. They whipped him and beat him to a pulp. They mocked him. They scorned him. They hung him up on a cross and they laid him up in another man's tomb. And everybody said, it's over. It's done. It's time to go home. Checkmate. But they were wrong. The king had one more move. I know it's not Easter yet, but can I just tell you, not as a professional Christian or as a pastor or as a Bible scholar, I think Jesus would like for me to tell you that he has one more move for you. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're looking at, whatever is coming down on you, it's not over. Keep moving. And if you don't need to hear it today, your day's coming. The king has one more move. Father in heaven, I pray that you would pierce through the darkness in our souls and help us see and know and feel and live in the midst of the hope of the empty tomb. This is divine work. We cannot pull this off with effort or willpower. We depend on your spirit. Would you do it? Do it today. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.